Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Starting to timestamp these ones. It is Monday the 6th of April at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Well, the world has changed dramatically in 2020 and markets have responded pretty wildly with the steepest falls but also the biggest bounces since the Great Depression. There's no shortage of commentary and policy trying to manage this period of incredible uncertainty and we're all grappling with that as best we can. What's interesting to note is that there seems to be a little bit of confidence returning to the share market. That big bounce has trimmed losses pretty substantially. Uh, market was up when I looked at it today. And it's created quite a bit of profit for those people who were bold and quick. There are fund managers saying that they're now all in. There are people returning to the market. And what I want to talk about today is whether or not the worst is really over because that doesn't seem to reflect a lot of the commentary in the rest of the world and a lot of the data around COVID-19 and many other things. So today I'm joined by Greg Stock, the Head of Credit Research and Senior Portfolio Manager at Perpetual Investments. He's been with Perpetual for over 15 years and has been in fixed income markets for over two decades. So he's seen many interesting times, including the GFCE. Greg, thanks so much for joining me. Nice to be here, Gemma. Thank you. So Greg... One of the first things I want you to talk about, because NabTrade is an equity trading platform primarily, although people buy lots of different things on there. Can you talk about how credit guys see the world? Because as a credit person, you look at very different risks and possibilities to the average equity investor, the things we get excited about. Sure. That's a very good point, Gemma. We tend to be the perma bears. We tend to be always looking at the downside. We seem to see the world as glass half empty. And the reason for that is we have, in credit markets, um, we have asymmetric um, risks. So we have limited upside but unlimited downside. So we're very focused on capital preservation in our asset class because credit and fixed income are very focused on capital stability in your portfolios. So we have to be very focused on the downside risk. It's more important than the upside. So um, uh, diversification is very important in credit more so than in equities. So in a credit portfolio, you might have 100 different securities, whereas in an equities portfolio, you might have 20 or 25 for to get the same level of diversification. So I think um, for us, it's a challenge. We want to be risk-aware as investors in credit and fixed income. We don't want to be risk-seeking or we don't want to be risk-averse either. So we have to find that middle ground between trying to preserve capital and also taking enough risk to get some excess return for investors. There's no such thing as a 10-bagger or a 20-bagger in credit fixed income markets like there is in equities. So you don't get that massive upside. So um, I think it's a bit of a mindset difference between us and equity investors. But there are some similarities which we can talk about later. So it's a really different way of looking at the world in this kind of environment, I think. And it's one of the things also in terms of how you analyse stuff, you look much more carefully, I imagine, at cash flows and the kinds of stuff that maybe uh, there's a... <laughs> a lot of stuff that equity investors are happy to buy with very limited cash flows. In fact, sometimes no cash flows at all. So can you talk to me about that a little bit? Sure. So it depends on when you look at individual securities um, and, and issuers, whether it's a company or whether it's a particular issuer company or the like, or a bank or, or property trust or a industrial company, whatever it is, or a telco, we um, go through some security analysis just like an equity investor would. So look at their balance sheet, their cash flows, their profit and loss statement. Look at their gearing levels is very important to us. 
look at the caliber of management. We look at their attitude towards gearing levels and their propensity to maintain their gearing levels in a constructive way that produces steady income and, and doesn't jeopardise the business profile through volatile periods such as we're going through now, Gemma. So I think we almost think of ourselves as um, like a bank credit department or a lender in a bank. We try to think of ourselves as lending like a bank as opposed to a different part of the capital structure. So we sort of look at those, you know, credit officers and banks traditionally have these, an acronym called the three C's of credit where you're, you know, cash flow, collateral and character. So you're looking at those three main points. So what's the cash flow or what's, what's the ability to repay, the capacity to repay for, from a lender, whether it's a company or individual? So what's their ongoing income or revenues from business? Um, their collateral, or if that all else fails, what's what's backing the debt? What can we take as security? What's, is there, a, is there a, a property, a building? Is there machinery um, and the like? Um, and their character, what's their attitude to debt? That was what I mentioned to a little bit earlier. So if they have a good attitude and have a propensity to very pay debt as opposed to some people who are less inclined to... There are some people like that in markets. Well, Trump is the famous example, right, where he said if you owe a million dollars, you've got a lot to worry about. If you owe $100 million, the bank's got a lot to worry about. <laughs> One way of putting it. Interesting I think, perspective. Yeah, I think, he's got, I think he used bigger numbers than that as well. But, right, I'm um, sure he did. It, so the things, better with him. <laughs> plenty to worry about, I imagine. But uh, the three CISOs are really interesting set of criteria to use in this environment where – all those Cs have potentially changed for businesses so quickly and without any warning at all, right? Um, I mean, there are people who anticipated that COVID-19 would be much worse than many other people did and so on, but, you know, we're talking December to now. But even still, it's only been a short time period, only been a couple of quarters, Gemma, as mm. right. as you say. It's not like a year's building up. That's right. So structurally, so, that can really change a lot about markets and companies and the like. Yeah, so we'll talk about that in a minute. I was going to say this morning I was reading Howard Mark's latest missive, which, you know, he's one of the very, very famous credit guys, right, and everyone pays attention to what he talks about. On a global scale, he's got very strong opinions. He's willing to articulate those clearly to investors. He's generally only out there talking every couple of months and then suddenly he's he's made commentary twice in a month and has become much less optimistic over the last few weeks. Can you talk us through why that might make sense at a, at a macro level and then specifically for someone who works in credit? Sure. I think you mentioned you, uh, you mentioned to me previous to the podcast that you might um, talk a bit about his latest missive or, or publication. I had a read through it. He's quite a balanced guy and, he, and as you mentioned, he does communicate with the market quite regularly and openly and candidly. And he has been concerned for quite some time about entities being over-levered and, and the capacity to repay has been reduced or with larger leverage levels and low levels of, of, of rates and ability to withstand some form of shock was reduced, whether it's a spike in rates with increase in serviceability that they'd have to pay or whether it's a reduction in revenues. So and no one saw a pandemic coming. So what he was alluded to is there's an upside and a downside case. And I think, I think the, the bearish case includes... First and foremost, this COVID-19 pandemic being worse than anticipated, being more elongated in terms of its severity, and it takes longer to for people to um, be able to get out of isolation and, and social distancing and back to their normal work life. And then secondly, there's sort of three main points, or four actually, three. There's that one. So if it goes uh, longer than anticipated, 
um, which so far it has in all Western countries after China. Initially, there's been, been pushing that timetable further and further away. Secondly, it's when we go back to work, is work going to be the same? So we've had supply chains disrupted globally with trade, um, international travel, international um, trade and, and cargo has been reduced with it or, or prolonged in terms of that supply chain. So And then certain countries and certain geographies won't be able to produce goods for a certain amount of time or, or companies will want to change and not rely on that. So that was part of the start a couple of years ago with Trump with the whole US-China trade dispute. Uh, apparently Chinese don't like to call it a trade war, which is fair enough, it's a dispute, but it all started back then and I think the tariffs that the US introduced made production of that supply chain inefficient for certain industries and certain companies um, and they had to reassess where they were going to produce and that produced a supply-side shock to the economy. And now we've got a demand-side shock from this COVID-19 where people... It's not the credit crunch this time, like it was in the GFC. This is the cash crunch. No one's got any cash. And so um, I guess that leads into the third point that he made is, while it's well and good that there's been this large fiscal response by um, global governments, um, including the US and Australia and, and Europe, it's um, how effective can that cash be and how much, how long can they go on for without jeopardising the fiscal def- um, positions that this government's already struggling with? And whilst there is this demand shock on the downside, which has deflationary pressures, eventually you might build up some inflationary issue with QE or MMT and this leverage and debt that um, may cause a problem for us at the back end as well. So he was highlighting some very valid concerns, which I think should definitely not be dismissed. And, and whilst it's good and well to be positive and, and hope for the best. I think it's best to plan for the worst. So I think some of his issues are um, worthy of note for us in Australia in a, in a global context. The other one that he mentioned, which is probably is less important for us as Australians, is he talked specifically about oil and and the oil industry in the States, um, shale oil and their dependency on oil as a, as a defence um, issue for, for themselves, self-sufficiency and energy. Um, Australia's we still have um, exposure to oil, but we, um, it's not as great a part of our economy as it is over there, or they're not as exposed structurally. We have other issues. We have, a, we, speaking before about tourism, higher education. Um, these are big industries in Australia, and, and, and these already a big shock to our economy, and, and they are sectors to watch in terms of credit and, and investments for, for our listeners. So question without notice, but one of the things we love to discuss in Australia is property and Australia has what the second highest household debt in the world. Apparently the Swiss have got us hands down on that one, lucky mm-hmm. guys. Um, we have this enormous household debt in Australia, all property related. Are you concerned about that? Yes, I, I am. I think um, it has been concerned with, with everyone working in financial markets, particularly credit and fixed income investors. I think there are mitigants to that, to that high level of debt. Um, we do have a uh, banking system which which has strong um, recourse to security, to the collateral when they, when they lend to um, individuals and, and private individuals and, and households. However, the amount of debt um, when their income is, is, is severely reduced like it is at the moment 
has um, will put stress on on those lending, and that's why the government and the banks are working very quickly and furiously to um, hopefully provide some interim package while there's this disruption to to the workplace. So hopefully they can at least keep those repayments going along. They don't have mass defaults on loans, and because otherwise you can get a spiral the other way, like house prices. Um, it would be terrible to see to see that destabilise massively. So um, I think the, the the good thing about Australia is that despite having some of that debt, the oversupply and building is not as great as it is in some other countries. So I think that's one mitigant um, to that. Um, and also the other good thing about this is that lately since the financial services inquiry and then the Royal Commission, um, bank lending standards have been tightened as well. So... and. I think hopefully the lending's more more sound than it has been in the past. So hopefully we ought to get through it. It's interesting working for a bank, and I'm not close to the home lending part of the business, but certainly at present uh, we are hearing from the bank all the time about the enormous volume of inquiries, but also the enormous resources they're throwing at talking to customers, giving them options, ensuring they have lifelines and all that kind of stuff because the bank wants to see defaults about as much as everybody else does, right? We're well, <laughs> determined to yeah. ensure that this doesn't become a downward yeah. spiral. Sure. Well, I'm sure that I'm sure there'll be instances of uh, repayments will go into arrears, arrears will increase, there will be defaults, there will be impaired loans. But I think if there's a framework with this income support, fiscal income support for the broader population provided by the federal government and that and the, and working with the banks to to try to mitigate this this period, and hopefully they can work through that. That it'll be a um, it won't be a catastrophic downturn in terms of asset quality for the banks because it has a it's a solid banking systems is is a good thing for the economy, especially during a period of stress like we're going through. And but also you want that to help the economy when we get out of this and have a recovery. But also it's the the human cost of it and, and it's sort of social fabric. We want to keep everyone, um, despite being the socialisation, we want to keep people or possibly out of work. We want to keep them um, productive and, and, and happy and, and, and be miserable at home and, and go into social and civil unrest. That'd be the worst thing you want. Imagine being in America with all their guns at home and unemployment. It'd be... Um, uh, it'd be interesting to see how things go there. So I think that's the very bare case. The guns, I think. Yes. <laughs> we, we don't have that so much to fear. One of the um, one of the more interesting baseline pieces of data that most of us have lost sight of. We're not talking about it quite so much. Is that. The world was very heavily indebted before COVID-19 came along. We felt that post-GFC we all got to act together, but in fact debt had tripled in some areas. It was quite astonishing. Can you tell us about where we were, say, at the 1st of January before COVID-19 came along? Um, in terms of global debt, what governments and companies were owing, the quality of that debt in particular and what that means for people right now? Yes, the world was... Um Highly indebted. Often, I guess the US economy is the most highly quoted economy in the world. We had the most sort of debt bubble, I guess, so to speak, and where you had debt levels in, in magnitude, the highest of all time. And and some individual companies were so large, and, and their individual debt was so so large. There were some of the largest companies like GE and AT and T and. Ford and GM, and they had debt levels of individual companies somewhere between fifty and two hundred billion dollars each as a company, and that's that's just a massive, and that's as a percentage of of their um, 
um, debt to equity levels were extraordinarily high on, on any standard of any metric throughout any point in time. So the capacity to deal with, with this downturn um, in terms of revenues and increasing credit spreads so is, is, is testing. So there have been some policy measures in place in the US to try to keep the credit markets functioning, keep investors um, lending open and to those style of entities. Um, some deals have been done to roll some of their refinancing that, that happens, but it's a question of how long these companies can can continue to repay their loans and at what spread level they'll be able to refinance them at. So um, there's no reason to think that they won't at some point, but there definitely are risks to the downside. Revenues are going to be decreasing, credit spreads are increasing despite rates being low and dropped to lower. So their ongoing uh, financing rate will be higher and their revenues will be lower. So I think the first... There'll be stress in, in some companies, so the more indebted ones will be more stre- in financial stress than, than the less indebted ones. So probably more concentrate in terms of the immediate risk in, in more high-yield names, so the more and, and investment-grade names will have a bit less stress to start with, um, but it'll be how we progress from there. And I think it will be a question of how strong these individual companies are in terms of their business model and how how their equity um, stakeholders will, will proceed through this this, this crisis and, and they may not be able to get Dividends may be stopped or they may have to raise equity. Um, but I think the first and foremost hit will be equity holders, unfortunately. Um, this happens with every downturn and the like. But it'll be a question of how quickly they can respond. So um, companies with good business profiles and, and sound stakeholders and, and good management um, will, will come through. Other ones will have be more testing. And I guess the other thing we spoke about earlier is there'll be structural issues. There'll be some industries which will change and contract and they won't rebound. And there are other industries which will grow and develop as because of this. So um, that might be accelerated. So there are some risks we have to look out for. So we came to this crisis with a lot of people. So we were talking about households earlier, a lot of institutions and a lot of governments, Australia less so than others, thankfully, owing an awful lot of money. And they were handling it reasonably well, when rates were at all-time lows, which is when you should handle your debt pretty well, I imagine. Uh, and now we've been hit with this extraordinary shock and it's hitting sectors where you may have had a fantastic business model three months ago, but it isn't anymore because people can't leave their homes. How do you see this playing out? Well, I think from a fund manager's point of view, I think it's a big lesson in diversification, diversification in individual names, individual sectors. I think that's a very important part of a, of a portfolio or a fund. I think it's um, in good times we can get complacent about that and you can get more concentrated, but it's very, very important to not be overly exposed to certain industries. And, and I think those industries and sectors will change throughout the cycle. So just come out of a very buoyant boom cycle where um, maybe discretionary spending, discretionary sectors have performed very well. But then in a down cycle, they'll perform less well. So if you're overexposed in the good time or if you allocated more, then you might be exposed. You would have performed well then, but on the downturn, on the down cycle, you'd be more exposed to the frailties of that sector or those individual issuers. So that's part of just portfolio construction. It's very important. 
And I think monitoring that and changing that dynamically over time as the economy and the outlook changes is very important. In terms of more broadly, I think this fiscal response will, will be helpful, definitely. Without it, it'd be disaster. You will get mass defaults and mass unrest and, and industry sector disruptions, and I think that would be unhelpful to anyone. So I think it's going to play out in that um, it's been big and it's getting bigger all the time in terms of the quantum of the fiscal response. So we're lucky is... we're living in a country where we can afford to do that. Some countries aren't as, as wealthy or, or have the capacity to do that. So hopefully that will help the interim transition to whether it back to normality for some people in some sectors and some jobs or it's through that transition to where they'll have to work out their loans or work out their businesses and transition to a new job or to a new area or work or, or, or the like. Hopefully it will. And I think in Australia, I think we're, we're lucky. I think, I think in terms of I think we were able to contain it by being a continent or an island where we can lock the borders essentially to, to, and contain it. And, and if we can do that, then we can start the economy working again. And so I think I'm quite constructive compared to some other parts of the world that we might get going again in, 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 in not, not in the short term, but I think, I think um, you know, this planning for six months and then ongoing from that, different iterations between that and the next six months after that, hopefully we could get back to some form of normality. It might be the same, but you'd, hopefully at least there's enough going on, on and we're able to do enough in terms of getting out and working that we can keep producing and, and for ourselves and, and what export capacity that we have as well. So a few things on that front that I think are quite telling. So one is that we know it will take minimum 12 months to get a vaccine to market. We've, you know, that would be world record time for a vaccine. And the primary reason, it may sound funny to anyone who doesn't know anything about vaccines, and I don't know very much, so with my you know, <laughs> layperson's view of it all as best I can gather. But you have to do plenty of testing, right? You don't want the vaccine to cause more harm than good. And there is a lot of potential harm to be caused by this one because apparently we have never created a successful coronavirus vaccine before. So it's not like we've got heaps as a prototype and we can just go and tweak it a little bit and we're good. This one's a bit more complicated. There's also the issue that the virus can mutate and become more complicated itself and so that is a risk. Uh, So there is this issue about getting a vaccine to market. It's 12 months away and people I know who are relatively uh, well-informed about how these things will operate go, look, even if we can flatten the curve and find that there are very few transmission cases in Australia, you can't open your borders. So we'll still have to have lockdown borders, no international travel and so on, which to your point about education and tourism and so on will affect a lot of industries, even if we do get back to some form of normality. No, definitely. There'll be stresses in in the um, tourism industry, in in holiday destinations, holiday rentals, um, anything that's related to to those industries in particular, but also just generic trade. We're we're a small open economy. Um, and and we rely on that a lot. So I think you're you're right, Gemma. I think it's it's hard to see a V-shaped recovery or even a U-shape. Really, I think um, we just have to play this one as it goes along. I think there are some positives, though. I think you don't want to be too negative or too bearish. I mean, I, mean, I know this is the bearish podcast, and, and I'm a credit guy, and I, I am meant to see the bearish case and all, but. 
compared to other pandemics, when you when you read some of the literature and hear some of the ways the worlds have dealt with these things previously, it's quite fascinating. Some industries, their ability to continue functioning has been quite outstanding from when you think about it. The way you can go home in our industries and work from home with a laptop and, and remote learning and, and be quite productive wouldn't have happened a century ago. There's no way when the Spanish flu was happening you could have had anywhere near the same productivity and continuity. So to, I think that's an example of a positive in terms of, of maintaining businesses and some form of normality in in the economy and, and those industries and, and keeping things going. So maybe when those other things, the lag and that, but maybe the rebound may be stronger once that longer lag time happens, maybe we'll be able to return quicker because we've been able to keep this skeleton or this remote business operations going in the meantime. So, so one piece of data, a Zoom, uh, our good friends that we now use 700,000 times a day. Everyone's best friend. Yeah, everyone's best friend. Zoom, and my son, who's six, does Zoom meetings with his friends to give you an idea of just, just how widely used it is now. They had 10 million daily active participants in December. Wow. They had 200 million active daily participants in March. And they were like, uh... We built our business to be scalable, <laughs> not quite that scalable that quickly. Mm. So they've been very open about the challenges of trying to create something that is functional when the uptake is 200 times, um, not 200%, but 200 times uh, in the space of 30 days or something. <laughs> but uh, they're doing a good job. Yes, yes. On the flip side, so let's talk about the bear case because here's a piece of data that I thought, a piece of research, I guess, that a lot of our investors will want to think about. So people price equity markets generally using a PE, right? The E side is the earnings. So the prices have fallen, let's say about 20% today's market, be a little bit higher maybe now. The E's haven't moved, right? We haven't had any major uh, announcements. I mean, obviously, some businesses are saying we're not giving you any forecast at all because we simply can't in this environment. And a business like Flight Centre and so on, they've had to be fairly cautious about their thoughts uh, on earnings going forward. But ease have not been rated down significantly. City came down and City came out today and said we, in an environment like this, we would anticipate the earnings side of the market as a whole being rated down by 50%. So earnings will drop by 50% across the market, which is not particularly surprising given there are some businesses that will have earnings that are going dramatically backwards in this environment, some that will be doing fine. Coles and Woolies, great. Uh, Plenty of others really, really struggling in this environment. When your earnings drop by 50%, theoretically your prices should drop by 50% as well. And that's assuming that you weren't paying particularly high PEs before. Now, the PEs for everything outside banks were 23 times before this started. So PEs were not looking particularly low by historical standards. So if City's saying we would anticipate equities falling by 50%, the price of equities falling by 50%, and that's to maintain the PE that was, was in existence prior to this happening, what are your thoughts on that? Mm. It's scary, isn't it? Um, that's not beyond the realms of possibility either. I guess before the, the full scale of this pandemic dawned on everyone and over the last last three to five years, markets have been increasingly ambivalent to risks and increasingly overvalued in all asset classes, whether it be credit, whether it be equities, whether it be property. 
And part of that was due to low interest rates that set by central banks globally trying to induce some inflation that wasn't coming along, wasn't appearing. So we had this deflationary environment and that creates a whole lot of imbalances in the economy globally, in the US globally and in Australia. So I think this COVID-19 is two things. It's been a catalyst to reprice risk. So it's been a reminder to everyone about risks in markets, in the economy, in their lives. And that's been healthy. That's been a good thing from a market participant's point of view, from a credit and fixed income guy in our market. But also we want all markets to be um, uh, more rational. It's, it's, it's healthy for the, for the efficiency and effectiveness of allocation of capital, whether it's credit debt capital or whether it's equity capital or whether it's resources. So uh, as a market participant, we, 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 I advocate for that and I would like that. So it's good to see some more rational pricing there. Um, I'm not an equities guy, so there's a caveat to, to disclaimer, but um, <laughs> you, you would expect from, from where you look at these companies that issue corporate debt and, and credit and, and we look at their equity as well and that's our first loss piece, their ability to continue their earnings and cash flows and serviceability of debt also their ability to raise equity or to cope with um, a period of reduced earnings is very important assessment for us in, in, in our credits. So we do have an opinion on that. So, um, yeah, I think the disruption to the earnings part of the cycle is is very real and, and very sharp. Um, I guess more the question is, is how quickly can that rebound? How quickly can they resume operations to get back to a more normalised earnings? And that's that's that. Earnings, short-term earnings versus normalised earnings, that's, that's more the issue. So I think that's the consideration for more of the long-term pricing. But on all metrics, um, um, things were very expensive before, so hopefully um, they don't go too far on the other side. But I guess that's, that's, that's maybe the question you're asking. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, my question is, do you think City's right? that So they're anticipating another 30% fall in equities. They're saying they've fallen 20 if earnings fall by 50%, that's what we expect, we would anticipate another 30% fall in equities. I think, yeah, I'm really not an asset allocator. I don't have an asset allocator hat to put on or my equity hat to put on, Gemma, but I think as a as a credit fixed income fund manager and, and market participant, look, I think another fall of some description of magnitude, significant magnitude, you can't rule that out. There's, there's definitely, I think it's not folly. At the same time, market timings... A very hard thing, very difficult to do. So if one's looking to allocate funds or, or exposures, I, th- I think the trick is to to have a a plan's important, but I think planning's even more important because you don't know what environment that you're going to be operating in or investing in, and so you need to adapt your plan. So that planning phase is very important. I think going from a very expensive part of all asset classes to a, to a cheaper, more realistic. Um, framework and current price environment, you, you would think that now would be a time to, to start out allocating in some form of plan and getting some good advice is important. We talked about all these structural changes in the economy, structural changes in markets. It's time to get some good advice, have a plan and stick to it. I think um, there's going to be no easy way, but it's like saving a little bit more because you're not going to get these kicker from your wages or wage increases for some period of time. You'd be lucky to keep your job, you know. You'd be lucky to rely on governments to give you some of these these um, fiscal program handouts and the like and programs to, to help you through this period. And likely, likewise, you're, not, you're going to be reluctantly or it's going to be prolong the time frame until you get some sort of capital appreciation underlying assets. 
So I think it's going to be a, a slog going forward. It's going to be a time to battle down and, 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 and save and work hard and you know, hopefully we can get out of this and for the better. So, Greg, any other suggestions for investors at this point in time who are obviously hurting a bit and should, with good reason, have some concerns about where things are going to play out over the next 12 months? We've talked a bit about the fiscal response to the coronavirus. I think we haven't really touched on the monetary policy response, which has been quite massive and a big turnaround. So we've had our central bank, the RBA, come through and reduce the cash rate to 25 basis points, all-time low, and they've said that's going to be the floor. And they've instigated quantitative easing policies, so they're buying bonds to keep the yield curve uh, rates and the government bond curve at a predetermined level. And they're targeting the short end or the three-year part of the curve at roughly that cash rate, and they'll instigate quantitative easing and buying of bonds across the curve to um, still let the smooth operation of the government bond market. That's a big turnaround, and they, we've embarked on unorthodox monetary policy. So for so long around the world, we've, they've um, had QE and unorthodox monetary policy in the US, in Europe. In Europe, they've gone to negative rates. It's been a disaster. It's been a disaster for the banking system, and it's been very, very sad and had some very bad negative consequences. So we've been lucky to, to avoid it until now, but unfortunately been dragged into it, kicking and screaming. The RBA has done a lot of planning about that. They, they outlined last year if we went down this path what it would look like, and so they've just had to accelerate the timing to get there. And I think that's, whilst it's been a bit sudden, I think it's naturally, um, it's their whatever-it-takes moment, and I think it's understandable given the severity of this COVID-19 pandemic that's affected us so massively here and around the globe. So I think it's an important development. So what's the implication of that? Well, um, first and foremost, it, it's it's good. It's dropped lower um, borrowing rates for homeowners, for households in their mortgage repayments if they have a home loan or a mortgage. It's dropped borrowing rates for small businesses. It's dropped borrowing costs for governments with a lower cash rate and a serviceability of existing debt for governments, both federal and state governments and local governments. They have a lower cost of borrowing and they're going to need that because they're doing a lot more borrowing to, to fund all these, these programs. So and there's going to be a lot of issuance into the market. So as we've got this floor of the cash rate at 25 basis points and we've got this yield curve out to three years set at or targeted control at 25 basis points and further out, there's not a lot further lower that can go. So in your portfolio of, of investments, if you have some credit fixed income allocation and some bond allocation would have done very well over the last couple of years. You've got close to double-digit return over the last two, three years per annum by this ongoing reduction in cash rate and yields, bond yields. Um, however, we're starting to hit this hard floor now and so that those high single digits or double-digit returns, you, you're highly unlikely to get that going forward. The reason because they've stipulated they're not going to negative rates. And so you won't get that buffer, that correlation or that, that um, negative correlation to risk assets. So when equities drop or, or other risk assets, financial risk assets drop, you've got this positive kicker from your bonds, whereas now you haven't as much because it's hit that lower bound. So I think 
the gains from duration, and at the same time, you're getting governments issuing longer and longer bonds. So the index, the bond index that most people invest with um, a benchmark relative to the Bloomberg Osborne Composite Index, is getting longer and longer as longer and longer, more and more debt's been issued, and longer and longer government debt's been issued. So now that's five or three quarter years, whereas years past it's been four, four and a half. So it keeps getting longer and longer. So. If you're investing in that asset class, by default, you're getting some benchmark risk by that increasing. So I, I guess I'd advocate and we'd advocate that after being well served by having an allocation to that, maybe it's a time to reduce that allocation to long-dated bonds or, or, or in some form and to go to some form of shorter-dated um, bond in terms of duration Um Allocation, whether it's sort of somewhere in an intermediate bond index or a total total return bond fund, where it has a slightly more controlled duration limit as opposed to an index limit, um, that would be a sensible thing. And also, I think we think um, I think investment grade credits now is an outstanding opportunity. I think, despite being exp- arguably expensive for a couple of years and and active managers have been reducing risk, including ourselves up until now, you've had a big push out in spreads. Now they're starting to look like they've got out three, four times in some sectors or twice or three times in certain sectors as well. But so still they've gone out for a reason. Um, But all markets have sold off. Equity markets have sold off, bonds have sold off, credits have sold off, investment grade high yield, emerging markets. So... um, our market in Australia, our investment grade market, is quite well established. It hasn't been as over-levered as some other investment grade markets around the world. So we, we think that there are some opportunities already emerging in certain select names and sectors um, that we would have only, could have only dreamt about a quarter or two ago. So it's been exciting to put some money to work in, in, those, in, the, in that area. So I think there may not be... Massive, significant short-term gains, but I think definitely there are some medium-term, um, good, solid risk-adjusted returns in that part of a fixed-interest portfolio going forward, and you won't get it from duration because of that flaw that we talked about before. So they're all excellent points for people to hear about, and I think it's it is exciting in this environment to hear about things that are exciting investment opportunities. I think it, when there's a lot of downside risk, it's um, it's always fun to hear about the stuff that looks like there's a bit of upside as well particularly in credit, where we don't hear about that very often. (laughs) So, Greg, Perpetual has lots of insights for investors. You guys uh, talk about your funds and the different views that you have on markets. You're sort of one of the most uh, well-established names in funds management in Australia. Where do people go to find out what you're doing and what you're thinking? Well, uh, probably the best place is just our website, um, www.perpetual.com.au, and we've got a, a page dedicated to investments group. And then within that, there's credit and fixed income. So that has information about our funds, some insights, articles about risks, the markets, our current views. So that's probably the best place to go for a start. Greg, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Gemma. You weren't quite as bearish as I hoped, but that's all right. That's good. People probably <laughs> want to hear that. <laughs> it's probably best not to paint the the deep, dark, everything's going to hell. Sorry, I wasn't Dr. Gloom today. I tried my best. You did your best. That's all right. Thank you anyway. Uh, and thank you so much for listening always. We love hearing from you. Please, if you have any feedback or suggestions for future topics, there's obviously plenty to talk about at the moment, please just email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. 
Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.